couple of years ago, for, before the first time uh, I ever preached, four years ago actually, now, coming up soon, um, it was an incredibly stressful week to say the least. I did not talk much to my wife or anyone else. I basically shut myself in a room and read commentary after commentary and reread the passages of scripture that I was preaching on for about 10,000 times, I would say. Uh, I practiced this sermon, what felt like a hundred times. I videoed myself, watched myself, and then practiced it again. I was basically just listening to my sermon on non-stop. I would like to say that I was fasting so that I could hear the voice of God, but I really just couldn't eat because I was so nervous. Let's just say I was not the most fun person to be around for that week leading up to my first ever sermon. And I remember that Cass and I were on the phone with um, one of our best friends, and I was just communicating how stressed and how anxious I was. And that I was worried that if I didn't have this perfectly down, or if I stuttered through a sentence, or if one of the words just wasn't perfectly thought through, that God was not going to use the sermon. And I remember these four words that she has now said to me um, that have become this kind of half-joking, half-serious mantra that we recite to each other frequently and often. And she just said, Nathan, you're not that important. They've become this mantra for me because in reality, whenever I'm stepping up here to preach or whenever I'm just doing any sort of kingdom work, I start or I can start to feel this pressure to be perfect that if I somehow am not perfect, then it's going to be unusable and that God is not going to be able to do what God wants to do, which if you think about it, is a pretty prideful thought that somehow God needs me. In order to work. And while I don't think any of us would come out and explicitly say this, that God needs me or that this thing is about me and I am the main idea, while I don't think any of us would come out and say that, I think that at times we live in such a way that communicates that's how we feel. That we live in such a way where we're placing this pressure on ourselves that we are more important than we actually are when the reality is, and don't be offended by this, you're just not that important. There's this ideology that has permeated our culture today that you can control your own destiny, that you can change the things around you just by your own willpower. I call it the Oprah Winfrey philosophy. Uh, I wanted to put a quote. I just could not put my, I could not put an Oprah Winfrey quote in a sermon. So, but it's just this mentality that you somewhere deep inside of you, you hold the key to ultimate satisfaction and a fulfilling life that you are the center of your own universe. When the reality of our humanity, if we are honest with ourselves, is that we are limited beings who don't control our own destiny and who have the same amount of willpower as my two dogs whenever I'm holding up a piece of steak and I'm trying to get them to stay, which is no willpower whatsoever. St. Therese of Lisieux was in touch with this reality and that she recognized that she was not ever going to be this influencer of the masses or have this public personality that people were just drawn to. And she's quoted as saying this, for me, to become great is impossible. I must bear with myself and my many imperfections as I am neither capable or called to great feats of public witness. Here's a woman who has been named a saint, not because of what she's done, not because of her mass following that she had, but because of her humble self-awareness to realize that she was not that important. That the world did not rise and fall on her own decisions. That her whole life wasn't going to be determined by just one of her successes or one of her failures. And so what she resolved to do in her life as she lived it out was that she resolved to do the best that she could while committing and giving it all to God. This is the reality that I want to bring to bear this morning to each of us as we jump into this beginning prayer of praise by Paul in Ephesians 1 that we are not that important. 
Because before Paul ever gets into this Christian life and practically living out the gospel, before he talks about submitting to one another in love in Ephesians 4, or what this marriage relationship should look like in Ephesians 5, or withstanding the attacks of Satan in Ephesians 6, what he does first is he prevents this theological grid of the works of God that we are to have in the foreground of our minds as we live out this Christian life. This prayer is Paul's way of subtly saying, if you're going to live out this Christian life, if you're going to run this race well, if you're going to do what Jesus did and say what Jesus said and, and obey what Jesus commanded, then you need to make sure that your attention is not curved inwards on itself, but that your attention is fixed on the majesty and love of God's unfolding plan through his son, Jesus Christ. Just look at this passage today. An incredibly complex passage. Mark tends to give me these passages where they're just strewn with thought after thought after thought. We really just have a case here of Paul getting super excited and passionate and just talking and and just having one thought spark another thought that sparks another thought. And this dude is just going off the rails in a good way. He's going off the theological rails, just listing every single good thing that God has ever done from the beginning of time until the end of time. In the Greek, this is actually one condition continuous run-on sentence. There is not a separation in the Greek. This is just Paul barfing up beautiful theological truth, if I can combine those two in the same sentence. And so as best as that we can break this down so that we can try to bring this into bite-sized pieces so that we can really understand and try to figure out what Paul is trying to communicate in this prayer of praise. There's two sections that he breaks this prayer down to. The first section is just the first half of verse 3 where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A very Jewish way of starting off a prayer outside of the Jesus Christ part because, anyways, the Jewish people didn't, anyways... Just blessed be the God and Father was the Jewish way. Lord Jesus Christ, that's the Christian bit right there because Jewish people did not believe that Jesus was Lord and Christ and Messiah. All that to say, so is a very Jewish way to start off. And all he's saying is he's setting the framework saying God is worthy. God is worthy to be praised. He is setting the attention before he talks about anything else on the one thing that truly matters, and that is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the second section is the rest of these 11 verses. And Paul here says, God is worthy to be praised. Now let me hold up his resume that then proves, expands, and justifies why God is in fact worthy of all of our praise and all of the glory. He says that God is worthy because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not something that we now have to wait for for heaven, but that we get to experience now. It says that he has chosen us, that he has chosen you when you did not deserve it, when you were the least desirable person, when you were the worst person at a sport, he picked you first, that he has chosen you, he has adopted you. You are now brought into this fold of the family. He's redeemed you and forgiven you of your sins. He's made known to us mysteries that we would never have known otherwise. He's given us an inheritance and he's taken it a step further and he has then secured and sealed that inheritance for us by the promised Holy Spirit. Over and over again in these 11 verses, Paul is driving in one singular point and that is that God and God alone is worthy to be praised. God and God alone, not man, is worthy of all the glory because it is God, not man, who has been working for us on our behalf from before we ever even existed. Before sin ever even entered into the world, he was making a plan of grace. 
It's a resume of the work of God so that we would see this and our response would be simply just to praise him. And this is the starting point of practically living out the gospel. Before we can start living out the Christian life, before we can start doing all of these things that Jesus has called and commanded us to do, we have to have this firm and foundational understanding of the meaning of this new life. And so throughout this prayer, Paul is laying down the groundwork throughout this to see, for us to see that the meaning of this life, the ultimate vision that your souls should be directed at is simply all that we should be living out this life for the praise of his glory. Just look at verse 3 again. Blessed is, worthy is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is worthy to be praised. This is the point. In verse 6, after he lays down this theological theme of in him he has predestined us and adopted us, he says he's done these things to the praise of his glorious grace. In verse 12, after laying out that we have obtained an inheritance, he says he's done this so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then in verse 16, at the very end, after communicating that we've been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, that he has done so, so that he would receive the praise of for his glory. In all of these things that God has done, the overarching, driving, ultimate driving force behind everything that God has done has always been so that he would get the glory, so that he would get the praise. It's this theme that's hidden in this passage that over and over again, he's just communicating that God and all of his works are done to highlight him, to magnify him, to amplify him to the world that he is doing these things for. And it could be easy to miss this in a passage that has trigger words like predestination and chosen and election that could spark questions in us that have been being debated for the last 1800 years like did we choose him or did we choose or did we choose him or did he choose us? Can we lose our salvation or is it secured for us? Predestination or free will? These are conversations that if you want to have, have them over coffee with me or someone else. I don't want to talk about it right now because when we get so caught up on trying to figure out what Paul means by predestination and we're looking at the Greek syntax and we're trying to just do a spiritual jujitsu to it so that we can make it be and mean whatever we want to make it be and mean. We miss the point why those sentences and why those words are in here. That Paul has put them in here to communicate that in everything that God has done, he has done for his glory. When God predestined us, it wasn't about us. It was ultimately for his glory. When God adopted us, it was not ultimately for us. It was ultimately for the praise of his glorious grace. When God sealed our inheritance, it wasn't about us. It was about his glory. The story is not about us. The Bible is not about us. The works of God that he has done are not ultimately about us. They are ultimately about magnifying and glorifying his name. But our human nature makes us more important than we actually are. We place ourselves in the middle of the story saying the Bible's about me or I'm the main character of the story or I'm Paul or David or Abraham when the reality is is that we're just one of the randos standing in the crowd listening to Jesus preach. We're just one of the Israelites shaking in our boots, too, square, too scared to go and face Goliath, watching David do all of the work. We are one of the members of the church of Ephesus who have forgotten our first love. When God is working out his plan to unite heaven and earth, he is doing so ultimately for his own glory so that 
we would praise him. And to be honest, this is a concept that I have struggled with for years. I still remember our Exodus series uh, four years ago, five years ago, I'm not too sure, that took us four or five years to get through. Um, And I still remember Mark preaching on Exodus 20 where he said, you shall have no other gods before me for I am a jealous God. And I got the fact that I wasn't supposed to be idol worshiping or worshiping other things, but whenever I heard that word jealous, it still was hard for me to wrap my mind around how God could be jealous. Or whenever I see passages like this that's saying that everything that God does is for his own praise, it it confuses me. And I would always think, never say out loud because I'm scared of lightning, but I would always think, it kind of sounds like God is just this selfish and vain person who is saying, love me like me, give me compliments, tell me I look pretty. That's what it always felt like. And it was because I was looking at it through a human lens. I was looking at it, if I do everything in my life for my own praise, if I come over to your house and help you paint a wall, but I'm only doing so so that you would go, man, Nathan has such a servant heart. That's selfish. But somehow when God does that, when he comes over and helps me paint my house, that that is good and loving and mercy and selfless. And so this was always an idea that I was confused by, and it always rubbed me the wrong way until I read C.S. Lewis's Reflections on the Psalms, where he had this to say. He says this, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously flows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praise their mistresses, readers their favorite poet. Walkers praise their countryside. Players praise their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, hello, dishes, actors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. My whole difficulty about the praise of God was because I forgot that praise is most oftentimes the result of something we delight in. It is a natural response. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is simply incomplete until it is expressed. Here's the point that he makes. We have, no pre- we have no problem praising the things that we find our delight and that bring us pleasure. We have no problem praising those things because it is our natural response. If you look at scripture after scripture in Exodus 15, immediately after God parts the Red Sea and the Israelites walk through it and they turn around and they see the waves crashing down on the Egyptian army and God delivers them out of Egypt and it starts this journey of bringing them into the promised land. Exodus 15:1. immediately after that event, we read, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord for his triumphed gloriously 25 verses in Exodus 15 of them simply worshiping and praising him for what he's done. In Psalm 35, 9, David praying for deliverance, praying for salvation to come to him and to his army. He says he sees this come to fruition. He experiences an aspect of God's salvation. And he says, my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exalting in his salvation. 
Or think of the countless stories in the New Testament where Jesus heals a blind man, a leper, a woman bleeding, demon-possessed people, and he tells those people, not to tell anyone else, but they cannot help themselves to running back to wherever they came from and just simply proclaiming how good this God is. Or think of the new people here at Hope Fellowship who are just experiencing God's presence for the first time or you're new to the faith and so all this is so fresh and you're viewing the Bible with fresh eyes and whenever I'm having conversations with you, you can't help but just smile and talk about God's loving kindness and goodness and mercy. When we don't just hear about God or when we don't just feel like we have to praise God but that we actually experience an aspect of God's saving and redeeming and sustaining character our natural response is always going to be praise because praise is the consummation of our delight it is the fulfillment of our delight that then gives us an eternal sustenance that we can then feed off of Could these 11 verses here that are just theologically rich, I encourage you this week, just go and sit in this text. Could these 11 verses here be to the church of Ephesus, who later, John says, has lost their first love in Revelation? And could these verses be here for us in the room today simply to spark a new flame of adoration and delight so that we would turn our eyes and turn our lives off of ourselves and we would curve back outwards in the way that we were created and called to live. That we would turn our eyes off of our lives, our situations, our wants, our anger, our situation and simply look to him and say, my soul rejoices in you, O Lord. You are worthy to be praised. John Piper sums up this, I think, perfectly in his book, Providence. He says, God's goal is not simply that the glory of his perfections shine, but that we find God's glory praiseworthy. No, not just find it as praiseworthy, but feel it as praiseworthy. Feel its value. Because otherwise, our praise, listen, would be hypocrisy. God is pursuing the exaltation of his beauty in the enjoyment of his praising people. His glory is of infinite value. It is infinitely beautiful. Therefore, God in all his glory will prove to be more satisfying than anything or anyone else. It's not that God is selfishly doing these things to get all the attention. He's not some vain person that just wants our attention. Or he's not just some jealous toddler who, you know, you're not focused on them and he's not getting attention. God is doing these things in such a way. God is working all things out for his own glory because in him doing that, he is actually pursuing your full, eternal, and lasting pleasure. I want to say it again because this truth is amazing. When God is working for his own glory, when the ultimate purpose is that God would be praised and magnified and amplified and glorified, he is actually pursuing our full, eternal, and lasting pleasure. That somehow we are not that important, and it's not about us, and we've got to get over ourselves. and yet in the middle of those realities, God is still working on our behalf. He still has the sparrow, the blade of grass that's in your backyard that's dying. He still has you in mind when he is working all of these things out for his own glory. This is the difference between when I work for my praise and when God works for his praise. 
Because when I am doing things simply so that people would praise me or glorify me, I am actually misdirecting the hearts of people and encouraging idolatry and eternal misery. Because I am giving something to them that they can praise, but that it will not sustain them. But when God does these things, he is displaying for the world to see what is ultimately satisfying and sustaining, it, and sustaining, and he is inviting you into that, into the enjoyment of it. So Paul is just holding up the works of God, saying, this is what God has given you. He's chosen you. He's adopted you. He's forgiven you. He has given you an inheritance. He has sealed that inheritance for you. He's doing these things so that we would see that what the world can give, what ourselves can do, doesn't even come close to what God can. God gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The best the world can do in terms of that is give us something that might last us 10 years because everything in this world breaks and you have to buy it again. Unless you buy a Toyota, then you've got like 20 years. The best the world can do, God has chosen us, not based on what we've done. Listen, you were, take this, don't be offended. We were the ugliest people in the world, and yet God said, that is the most beautiful person I have ever seen. He has chosen us. He has adopted the person who is least desirable, that no one wanted. In fact, we did everything in our power to make him not want us, and yet he still chose us because his adoption and his choosing and inviting you into the enjoyment of him is not based on what we do. It's based on him getting the glory. The best the world can do for this is say that you are, as, you are accepted as long as you do what culture says is acceptable. It's the best the world can do. God seals for us our future by his own spirit. He says, this is so not about you that I am just going to take all of this into my own hands so that you, no matter how lost you get, no matter how much the world gets your attention, no matter how distracted you get, I am going to hold on to you, your salvation and your sanctification, so that you can always come back and find me. The best the world can do to that is say, you control your destiny, it's up to you, good luck. Paul is calling our attention to the majesty and wonder of God, to the meaning of life in him that puts to shame anything that this life could offer. It's one of the most impactful books for me still has been Ecclesiastes. It sparks an existential crisis every single time I read it. And in Ecclesiastes 1, verses 2 and 3, he starts off the book and just kind of just smacks us right across the face. He says, Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is what the world, without the weight of God's glory, gives to us. It is vanity. The Hebrew word there is hevel. You have to make sure you really spit something out when you say hevel. It's vapor or a mist. I still remember my dad preaching this sermon in eighth grade. Still one of the most impactful sermons I've ever heard. And he preached it, and he used this as an illustration just to show this vapor that the author of Ecclesiastes is thinking of and trying to communicate. Because what he is saying is that this life, without the weight of God, or just this life in general, is a vapor. Here today, and gone like that. My life, vapor. Corey's life, 
Vapor. Jeff's life, vapor. Pastor Mark's life, vapor. Cassie's life, vapor. Tatum's life, vapor. My dog's life, like that, right? Like, life is a vapor. It is a vanishing mist. This is all the world can offer you. A brief moment of enjoyment before it's gone for all of eternity. How many more times? This has essential oils in it, so it just it smells pretty good. We don't believe in essential oils. We just think that they're cheaper than candles. If I offended it, I'm sorry. Anyways. Well, no, you do think peppermint kind of works. I think it makes me feel sick. This is what life is. It's just fun to do this. It's just a vanishing mist. And yet we still find ourselves caught up in this. Trying to like grab something and hold on to it for dear life. We, we just find ourselves so fixated on how pretty it looks when the lights are going. We still store up treasure here. We still have, find ourselves having two masters. We still find ourselves placing hope in this world that it can sustain me somehow, some way. And again, where we never explicitly state that maybe, it's how we live our life at times. I want to say that I get it. I get how consuming this world is. I get how distracting this life can be as it demands for our attention. Life is busy. Schedules are full of events and meetings and work agendas, sporting events, vacations from vacations, and then vacations from your vacations, date nights, game nights, family nights, group nights. Life is stressful. You got to manage that schedule that I just read off. And then you have these unexpected flooded basements or leaky roofs. You have uncompleted projects that are staring at you in the face like the corners of your house that still aren't painted. I'm sorry, Cassie, I will eventually get to it. Or even in your spiritual life, you are just trying to manage your relationship with God. And so you're just trying to get through the Bible in a year, but you started eight days late and you are 16 days behind on it. That would be me. The world is clawing for our attention. I understand the demand that this world puts on us. I read the other day, or I listened in a podcast, that the average person in America touches their phone 3,000 times a day. Touches. So I'm not necessarily saying you're even looking at it, but it's just like, I've got to make sure it's there. And whether it's a ding from social media or telling you to sit up or stand down or stand up or sit down or it's an email notification or it's someone calling you or it's a text that's coming through at 11 o'clock or it's just 30 emails that I know I have unsubscribed from that are still coming through, but I still have to look at it because what if it's not in junk mail? Like what if it's something important? This world does not just invite us into something. It does not just invite us into a yoke that is easy and light like this life in Christ. It claws for your attention. It is doing everything in its power through Satan, through the sin in the world, through the sin that's coming against us. It's doing everything in its power trying to tell you, I can give you what your soul needs when the reality is it's just... It's just busyness and distract, distraction and destruction disguised as purpose. A busy schedule, a dream job, four kids, getting married, having $15 million. None of those things will ever supply the satisfaction that the soul needs in order to be sustained because it's all a vapor vanishing and without the weight of the glory of God giving substance to it. It's meaningless. This life is meaningless. 
if we live it out for ourselves, for this world, and not for him and his glory. The meaning of life is to live a life to the praise of his glory. And the challenge for us this morning and in our life is practically doing this. Actually being able to go out from here today, taking next steps and living out a life that is directed at God's glory. To live out a life that magnifies and amplifies his presence so that you can become a reflection of God's glory to those around you. I have heard sermon after sermon. I'm probably guilty of this myself in that they just explain this concept and I go, man, this sounds great. I really want to live to the praise of his glorious grace. I want to be a reflection of God's glory. And then they say, goodbye, and we will see you next week. And there doesn't ever seem to be anything that I can actually and practically go out and do. And while there is an aspect of you just have to be filled with the spirit to it, there are some things that we can be doing. I was watching this uh, a video the other day, and they said that in order to do this, we need to spend an hour of silence every morning meditating on the aspect of God. And I was going, man, an hour of silence sounds fantastic. But I have a screaming child who just seems to think that she wants to make sure that we know that she can scream. And I have dogs who are looking at me with eyes like, I'm starving, give me food. Or they're looking at me like, you better let me out right now, otherwise I'm doing something right here on your floor. Or I get those dings on my phone or someone needs me, or something happens, I don't have an hour to spend in silence. These concepts, and these important ones, this is essential for us practically living out the gospel as Paul will break down for us later in Ephesians. This is essential for us to grasp that the goal of all of these things, the vision of our souls, is simply to live for the praise of his glorious grace, to be reflections of his glory. But they can lose their practicality because we can't just go to a monastery and do this. We have to learn how to do these things how to live out a life that praises his glory while still managing the busy schedule, while working to pay the bills, going on a couple of fun trips every single year and doing things in this world so that we're not just some people living out in the desert like the monks. So how can we do this? How do we live out a life that is directed towards his praise? Three quick things and then we're done. First, The key to practically living out this life, to living a life of meaning as we are reflections of God, is to live in Christ. Look at the Ephesians passage again. Just look. He actually says it eight times. He says, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him. In him we have redemption through the blood. In him we have obtained an inheritance in him. You also in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit over and over again. We see that it is only in him, he in us and me in him can ever live this life of meaning, pointing our life towards the glory of God. And there's a lot of misconceptions about this. It's not a let go, let God relationship. It's not that once you're in Christ, you get to let go and man, he's doing all the work and you just got to get out of God's way. Not at all what this means. It's not a let God and then let's go. It's not a God starts up the car, but then everything else is up to you in this life to become a person who reflects God's glory. It's not a 50-50 partnership. It is a totally 110% and 110% partnership working together to combine a perfect harmony to form one cohesive song that praises God's glorious grace. 
Jonathan Edwards explains this dynamic of God and us and us and God by saying, we are not merely passive in it, nor yet does God do some and we do the rest, but God does all and we do all. We are in different respects, wholly passive and wholly active. This is the only way that you can ever possibly hope to live out a life that glorifies God. You have to do it in him. Second, is that you have to understand that as you live in him, it is a process. It takes time to become someone who reflects God's glory as you work deeper and deeper into his presence and he works deeper and deeper into your soul. We are rewiring a deformed soul in the midst of a polluted world. So you're going to be dealing with sin around you, sin against you, and still sin within you. So there's going to be roadblocks and setbacks and and bumps and turns. That's why it's called a dirt road of sanctification. Because it's going to take time. You don't just go from a deformed heart who is addicted to porn to a purified heart who is enjoying God every single nanosecond just overnight magically in your sleep. It takes small change, slow progress, and a moving deeper into him to become this person who reflects his glory by the way in which we live our life. And lastly, for some practicality, the way that we progress are not in these massive monumental shifts in our spirit, but in the mundane and menial moments of our life. St. Teresa of Lisieux, again, she said this to say, had this to say about the idea of our transformation. My mortifications consisted in breaking my will, always so ready to impose itself on others, in holding back a reply, in rendering little services without any recognition, in not leaning my back against a support when seated. It was through the practice of these nothings that I prepared myself to become the fiance of Jesus. I am not gonna use the language that I'm trying to be the fiance of Jesus, but that is how he kind of talks about it. He says that we are the bride and he is the bridegroom and that we are preparing ourselves. We are becoming someone who reflects him. And St. Therese says that her mortification is the way that she died to her old self and put on this new self in Christ was through the practice of these nothings. Being patient with a kid who is making you late to something that you wanna go to not needing recognition for an idea or a joke that you made, doing the dishes while everyone else is doing what they want to do and not then going out and being like, I did the dishes. Not falling asleep while you're praying, not engaging in gossip when someone else is just talking about someone, talking to someone that you find weird or that you even don't even like, just going up and starting a conversation. These all seem like nothings. But the reality is that it's in these small moments where we choose to have our eyes fixed so much on God that we aren't concerned about what people are thinking of us. And we're not concerned uh, about, man, man, I need to make sure this person knows that I am good or I have it all together. Where we're not concerned about things about us, but we are just concerned about whether or not we are reflecting God in the smallest moments of our life. It is there where we slowly but surely change our own lives to become reflections of his glory and also then change others' lives by being a reflection of his glory. Maybe in a world where man, we set massive goals and huge plans where we tend to live off this spiritual hypes from Sunday mornings until we have an empty tank and we need to come back, maybe we need to focus on progressing towards this life of meaning by practicing the nothings. 
One last quote, and then we're out of here. Rollheiser says this, he says, Our littleness, our unimportance, our not being in control makes us aware that for the most part we cannot do the big things that shape world history, but we can change the world more humbly. By sowing a hidden seed, by being a hidden antibiotic of health inside the soul of humanity, and by splitting the atom of love inside our own selves. As we work for God's glory, as we do everything in this life to glorify God, simultaneously we will fulfill the call that Christ placed in our life, which is to make disciples who make disciples. If you are doing everything, if your attention is fixed on the majesty and love of God, if you are doing everything in this life through the foreground of these theological truths so that your life is a life lived to the praise of God's glorious grace where you just can't help but talk about God to every single person you encounter, whether at the checkout line Uh, of a grocery store or just walking past someone and seeing uh, a Michigan hat and so you just decide to spark up a conversation with them or you see a dog and you pet it and then you look up at the owner instead of ignoring the owner and just pretending like the dog's the only thing there. When you're doing things like that and you're actually engaging with people and you are just saying, this is what God did for me. Let me just put the works of God on display for you to see. Let me just put them up on this pedestal. Let me just try to get every other person's attention fixed on God and not myself. That's when we become reflections of his glory. And this is the life that we've been called into in Christ. Live for his glory by becoming a reflection of his glory through the small practices of nothings so that you and everyone around you that you could come in contact with could be changed for his glory and for his will. Let's pray. God, we confess that we focus on ourselves, we think about ourselves, we do things for ourselves far more than we should. God, we confess that we have placed things of this world over you. We confess that we've placed our children and our wives or our husbands. We confess that we've placed money. We've confessed that we've placed achievements and goals. The dream life, we confess that we've placed those things at times over you. God, we repent of those things. We simply say that you are enough to sustain the deepest desires of our soul. So God, to those of us in the room, for the people in the room who have not experienced your presence, would you just fill them today? Would you just unfold the plan that you've been working in their life and let them just start connecting the dots in this moment by your spirit for them to see that was you this whole time? Would we encounter your works and praise you for them every day of our life? discouraged because we can't spend an hour in the morning in silence and meditation but that we would be encouraged and we'd be given the confidence simply because you throughout all of time in our present moment and in every future moment it has always been you 
working in us and through us and for us, ultimately all for your glory. So God, help us to engage with you today. Help us to experience you in our moments of our life so that we could have this natural response of praising the one who is the most delightful. God, we love you. 